When you see crowds as excited as these, it doesn't take much guessing to know that they're watching basketball, the greatest game of them all. It's a truly American game. And all over the country, every year in the high schools and in the universities, it's a tremendous favorite. As played by the masters, the incredible grace and consummate skill of the game is wonderful to see. No wonder it holds vast crowds enthralled. Sometimes, in fact, the game becomes more exciting than we bargained for. Relax, coach. But wherever the game is played, on city sandlots and at summer camps, as well as in the gymnasiums and big arenas, the fans feel that basketball is the king of sports. Well, there are kings of basketball, too. One team that is the greatest of them all, the finest on earth. As a matter of fact, the most fabulous collection of basketball talent since the game was invented a half century ago. They've reaped more honors in the last six years than any comparable sports organization. Within that time, they've won five world championships. No wonder they're called the Yankees of basketball. No wonder that nationally famous magazines have featured their exploits and their accomplishments in stories read by millions. The simplest indication of the interest they've generated is to be found in the many important publications that covered their achievements. And where do you look to find the world's greatest basketball team? Well, look for the land of 10,000 lakes. Actually, there are a lot more than 10,000 lakes in this state, but it's easier to say 10,000 than 12,462. And the capital city of basketball is a city of lakes, with nearly a dozen beautiful ones right in the community itself. Lakes in which you can swim and play. Lakes in which you can even hold a world-famous water festival, like the Aquatennial, where day and night, millions enjoy observing a week-long aquatic Mardi Gras. in Minneapolis, city of lakes, in the land of the sky blue waters, and naturally enough, the home of the Minneapolis Lakers, the world's number one basketball team. Five times world champions in the last six years, five titles out of six in the league that contains the world's best players, the champion of champions, the greatest basketball team of the century, the Minneapolis Lakers, and now, Meet the champs. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hiya, hiya, everybody. My name's Tim Hanlon, and of course, it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We appreciate you finding us this week and downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. However you're ingesting this week's proceedings, we are just tickled pink that you are here to go through it with us. And we're back into hoops. We love the pro basketball story and, and all the great sort of uh, idiosyncrasies that have uh, made up the fabric of pro basketball over the decades. Uh, of course, the NBA celebrating its 75th anniversary this season. Uh, all kinds of goodness and hopefully some good throwbacks and stuff. 
to come from that. And, and uh, we'll always use that uh, as an excuse to go back. We don't really need any excuse, frankly, to go back to, to great hoop stories. And, and we've got a good one for you this week. Our guest is Marcus Thompson, and he's the author of a wonderful book. Uh, I would call it both sort of a, a, a bit of an encyclopedic uh, offering, but also sort of meets graphic design. Uh, and it's a tremendous book uh, for, frankly, of, of fans of basketball of all ages. It's called Dynasties, the 10 Goat Teams That Changed the NBA Forever. Goat, of course, meaning the greatest of all time. Come on, get with it, kids today. Uh, and um, you can imagine in this book, uh, it's, 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 it's proverbially the, the, you know, the great uh, sort of uh, uh, Christmas and holiday gift. Uh, it, it's not a chore to read, and it's got some great uh, graphic takes on uh, but Marcus feels uh, is that or are the sort of ten greatest dynasties, and the obvious ones are absolutely in there, right? The uh, the Michael Jordan Bulls, the uh, the Shaq and Kobe Lakers, uh, the Larry Bird version of the Celtics, the Magic Johnson version of the Lakers, the Bill Russell version of the Celtics. Right? You see the sort of uh, uh, sort of a trend here. But the very first dynasty uh, that uh, Marcus calls out in this book, Dynasties, uh, is uh, kind of our topic. Uh, this week, and it's the Minneapolis version of the Lakers. And you kids today with your Los Angeles Lakers, you know, you need to know, of course, that you think Los Angeles has a lot of lakes. Well, not really. And it's obviously not the reason why they're named the Lakers. Now, of course, they got their name from their origination in the Minneapolis St. Paul region, the land, the state of 10,000 lakes. It's actually more like 12,000 change lakes, as you heard in that clip, uh, a commemoration, if you will, after the um, uh, the 1953-54 championship uh, of the Minneapolis Lakers. They were the kings of, of, of the NBA in the very first years of the NBA. Uh, and arguably, and not so arguably, frankly, the very first dynasty that the NBA had on its hands. Uh, and we get into the conversation this week about not only the, uh, the, the Minneapolis Lakers, but the importance of dynasties in the history of the NBA, frankly, defining moments, if you will, of the NBA. And, and the argument sort of goes, as you'll hear in our conversation coming up in a few minutes, uh, perhaps without some of them, or frankly, a lot of them, the NBA would not be what it is today. It's just this gargantuan money generating machine on a worldwide global basis. Um, but that story, uh, both specifically and generally, really does get its start with the Minneapolis Lakers, they being one of the uh, first uh, charter franchises of the National Basketball Association in its very first season, 1949-1950. Um, the Minneapolis Lakers not only won the very first NBA championship, uh, they also won uh, two championships prior to the NBA's being formed. And that is a crucial part of the story. Uh, the, the Minneapolis Lakers uh, were champions of two predecessor leagues, one directly and one indirectly, the Basketball Association of America in 1948-49, and the year prior to that, the National Basketball League, an ill-fated, short-lived uh, league that the Lakers were part of. Um, but this also is sort of a part of the story of how the NBA itself got, uh, got formed. Uh, and we've had many different episodes uh, uh, about... Uh, the various people involved, Mr. Saperstein, Mr. Gottlieb. I mean, so many different uh, uh, people and teams, the Philadelphia Spas and uh, just, you know, all kinds of, uh, uh, of great sort of tributaries, so to speak. And I think it's uh, it's lost on a lot of people that, you know, at the turn of the 1950s, 
uh, the, the, this thing called professional basketball was really just starting to get its sea legs. Of course, hugely popular at the collegiate and the AAU level, but uh, a number of different entities we get into our conversation, really trying to sort of form something long lasting and that would stick around uh, to create some level of professionalism uh, in uh, in the sport. And the Minneapolis Lakers with a one George Mikan, arguably one of the uh, titans of the sport. And thank God he made the night, uh, the, uh, the 75 uh, greatest players list. That would be a travesty if he had uh, uh, been eschewed for, uh, you know, some more modern players. Um, and of course there's some deserving players that did not make the top 75 for sure. But George Mikan, you can make the argument as Marcus does in our conversation uh, was probably the NBA's very first superstar. And this team that was dynastic at the beginning of its, uh, uh, of its life and the NBA's life, the Minneapolis Lakers uh, was uh, part of that story. We're going to get into all of it as we circle around the Minneapolis Lakers and the very first true dynasty of the NBA, or certainly what became the NBA, and the legacy that uh, came afterwards. Of course, at least two more dynasties in the Lakers as after they moved to Los Angeles. All of that story, the sort of foundational uh, part of all of that, uh, coming up with our guest this week. Marcus Thompson, the author of, of Dynasties, a great book, highly recommended, uh, coming up in just a few moments' time. You will enjoy it for sure. Uh, our sponsor this week, Ebbets Field Flannels. It's been a while since we've called them out. Um, you know, if you consider yourself an old-time uh, uh, historical sports fan, and if you crave accuracy and... Um, uh, credibility and genuineness in the articles of fandom that you might wear. You know that Ebbetsfield Flannels is unmatched uh, in its uh, commitment to quality, uh, accuracy, and uh, authenticity. And everything that they do at Ebbetsfield Flannels uh, is uh, uh, the highest uh, uh, version of quality and um, and historical uh, accuracy. And we are, are just we're just uh, honored to have them in our little sponsorship uh, uh, circle, ebbets.com. That's E-B-B-E-T-S.com. Uh, they're out in Seattle. I'm not sure if they've got a store again. I know it's been a, a challenging year and a half for uh, for the um, actual retail location, but go to ebbets.com and you're going to see just, uh, it is it is an embarrassment of, uh, of riches and tremendous uh, offerings in, of course, flannels, uh, certainly baseball. T-shirts, including some old-time basketball shirts. Unfortunately, not the Minneapolis Lakers, because that's obviously part of the NBA domain. But uh, if you fancy yourself a fan of um, the Philadelphia Spas, for example, a wonderful recreated T-shirt of that team, or perhaps the Asbury Boardwalkers, the Asbury Park Boardwalkers in New Jersey. Do you remember them? Not many do, but Ebbetsfield Flannels does. They've got ball caps, of course, from all kinds of leagues, Negro Leagues, Minor leagues, Japanese baseball, the old federal league. They've got sweatshirts. They've got jackets. They've got authentic major league uh, baseball jackets. They've got NFL uh, wool and Doreen uh, and authentic jackets, utility shirts, great soccer jerseys and jackets and T-shirts from the old NASL and, and other leagues, collegiate stuff, football, hockey sweaters, all kinds of great classic stuff. It is the ultimate expression of history and sports and fashion. It's Ebbets Field Flannels, and it's at Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S.com, E-B-B-E-T-S.com. <laughs> Hard to say, easy to find. And of course, 
uh, as you get your uh, holiday gifts uh, uh, ready to go from ebits.com, make sure that you use the promo code early and often to save 10% from all of your uh, purchases. That's Good Seats 10. Good Seats and the number 10. That's Good Seats, one word, the number 10. Put it all together, smash it all together. Good Seats 10 for 10% off all of your purchases at Ebbets Field Flannels. Again, Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S dot com. Thank you, Jerry and team at Ebbets Field Flannels. Uh, we appreciate your sponsorship of the show. And to you, great listener, we appreciate you listening to our fun conversation with a uh, sports writer at The Athletic. His name is Marcus Thompson. His book is called Dynasties, and we're going to get into the very first one of the NBA. This is the story of the Minneapolis Lakers. Here it comes, please, as always, enjoy. I stumbled across your book, which I thought is just is overall just generally very, very cool. Um, and we'll we'll talk about it as we get into the conversation uh, called Dynasties, right? The 10 greatest of all time teams that changed the NBA forever and uh, always looking for a hook for this show. And lo and behold, what's the first dynasty that you feature in this book? But right up our alley. Minneapolis Lakers. There baby, you go. The George go. Mike and yeah. Le- Exactly. So. Uh, but before we get into that, right, which is the, the specific kind of uh, just uh, focus that I want to um, tell us who you are. Um, I, I take it you're a sports writer by trade. I think I've seen some stuff that you've done in the past uh, and the genesis of this book. So, hi, my name is Marcus Thompson and I'm an alcoholic. No, I'm, jo- I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, uh, hi, I am, Marcus. Uh... <laughs> Thank you for for participating. I appreciate that. No, so I'm an uh, Oakland guy. I was born and raised in Oakland, California. I've uh, been a sports writer for 20 plus years now. I get the privilege of being a columnist in my hometown, which I think is special. Uh, I, I ended up covering the Warriors as a beat writer for, in 2004. And then 2009, they drafted this dude named Steph Curry. And a few years later, they kind of took off and became a dynasty. And during that time, oddly enough, the Warriors suddenly became this villainous team. Uh, As a matter of fact, they called themselves super villains because so many people hated them. And it was really odd to witness in real time because I grew up watching the Warriors and they were terrible. I mean, terrible forever. Making the playoffs was the greatest thing of all time, (laughs) just making the playoffs. That's how it was. So for this team to suddenly become a juggernaut, it, it felt like this great sports story. That was fun. But it endeared all this hatred. And so the the inspiration of the book is examining this idea that the Warriors are bad for basketball. And it led me to, to want to tell the story of how not only are dynasties great for basketball, but we should probably actually appreciate them. Uh, and, and including and especially the ones we didn't even see. Yeah, but this isn't even this is not necessarily unique to basketball, right? I mean, I look. I grew up in the in the '70s, probably before you were born. But as a, a, a New York Cosmos North American Soccer League fan, okay, yeah, it was a thing. We can all look it up, right? But uh, but they were a dominant team in this in the then fledgling league. You know, they had all these great world superstars and stuff. And I remember columns in the New York Daily News, the New York Times talking about, let's break up the Cosmos with Pele and all that, because they're too good. They got all the talent and they're winning everything. And it's not uh, it's not fair. So I, I'm just curious as to why you think uh, basketball is any different. 
I, I don't think basketball is any different. I mean, we just heard this with UConn, right? Like, UConn's winning too much, women's basketball. I do think that's a common conversation. I would say the difference is, like, basketball is a, a relatively new sport. Uh, it's, it's young compared to its contemporaries. And the NBA as a league is relatively young. And the, the point that I was trying to make in the book is that without dynasties, there's probably no NBA, right? There's probably be soccer. There probably would be baseball. There probably would be football. Uh, but basketball needed dynasties to elevate from like this kind of second tier, low level sport where college and AAU was what people cared about, not pro basketball. When they were playing in like YMCA's and high school gyms, like they needed dynasties to become relevant and to become the league that it is. So that, to me, that was a bit unique to the NBA where it was a lot about the dynasties like that you might not actually have an NBA if not for them. Well, I, so I guess that's a perfect segue then, because it, why you focus on maybe obviously right with the Minneapolis Lakers uh, in the NBA. But but obviously, I think as you're sort of somewhat hinting, right, the story of Mike and George Mike and the Minneapolis Lakers. And yes, they were the Minneapolis Lakers before they moved to L.A. in the 60s, uh, that they, they actually sort of preceded the NBA itself. These Lakers did or and Mike and Absolutely. I mean, we need to be clear about this. Without the Minneapolis Lakers, there's no NBA. Without George Mikan, there's no NBA and perhaps no professional basketball. Uh, again, they, they played in cages to begin. Uh, so when Naismith set up the original rules, when, when the ball goes out of bounds, like the way we know basketball now is the team that sent it out of bounds, the other team gets the ball. But in the original rules of basketball, Whoever got to the ball first ended up keeping possession. So you had all these players rummaging outside the bounds of the court trying to get possession of the ball, sometimes in the crowd. So they put up cages to prevent that delay of the game because you can imagine it's like, like a two-minute with two guys wrestling for the ball. So they put up cages, and they were known as cagers. It wasn't even like a real big draw. And as a matter of fact, there weren't seven-footers. We look now, we say, if somebody's really tall, we ask them, do you play basketball? That wasn't the question being asked then. Uh, George Mikan had to be groomed to play basketball. He was this seven-foot dude. He was kind of clumsy. And this one guy named Ray Meyer, like, taught him how to play basketball with this grand idea that he, he might be good because he's really close to the rim. <laughs> so that – was the draw it was george mikan he was he was the spectacle that that people paid attention to and really outside of him nobody cared about pro basketball he was the draw and then he ends up on the chicago gears uh in the i think it's a national basketball league and they end up folding and it was a draft and they ended up he ended up on the minneapolis lakers and then that's how you get the nba but None of this happens without them. It doesn't. The NBA is probably an intramural sport that nobody cares about, if not for the spectacle that was George Mike in and the dynasty that was the Minneapolis Lakers. Yeah. So look, and I, you're also sort of dancing around the the uh, the, the reality that uh, if anybody was into basketball or following basketball, it was at the college level, right? And and even that had only sort of come out of AU too. Yeah, AAU was you, it. Yeah, Amateur only, Union Athletic that was huge. Yeah, that sure. was big. And that came out of what? You know, the 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 uh the the uh company leagues, right? And 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 even even further back into 
uh, immigrant uh, uh, situations, right? Both uh, black and Jewish and Italian and, and Irish uh, in the East Coast, especially uh, where there were more, it was more sort of a an interlude between uh, social gatherings and dances. I mean, it was it really was a scrappy kind of beginning. It really wasn't even close to being professional. Oh no, not not at all. Uh, I was reading stories about how they had this problem of fans like poking poking players through the cage with stuff and burning people with cigars. And obviously basketball was super segregated back then. It was much more of a social gathering outside of the college spectrum. College ruled everything at that point. Uh, but yeah, it's very humble beginnings. And, and the truth is, I know the NBA celebrated 75 years. It was, still wasn't popping 75 years ago, right? It, it, it really didn't take off like 1980 when Magic and Red Bird got to the league. So even before that, there was a good three decades of kind of scuffling and trying to find its way. All right. So how do you then sort of circle around uh, the Minneapolis Lakers? I mean, I think obviously that story kind of starts, but doesn't always finish, though, completely with this George Mike in character. Right. He made the 75 top uh, players list. Uh, thank God, because you'd think if, if, if somebody like Mike and didn't make that list, well, there is no history. Right. But um, he comes out of Chicago and. Um, how does he essentially become sort of the first superstar in the NBA? It almost feels like this is a uh, almost a, a cosmic timing thing more than anything else. Like a player in his prime uh, tearing it up with DePaul in, at the NCAA level just around the time that this professional thing was kind of starting to gel. And it, but it was struggling to gel too. It wasn't it wasn't really working well, and that that was kind of the problem. A guy named Ray Meyer saw him and developed. Saw him at DePaul and, and said, "I'm going to develop this guy." So you know, we we still have the Mike and drill was one of the drills that he taught him, and you know, he's taking dance classes and stuff to work on footwork. Uh, but he had, he he became this kind of this huge draw that would draw the big crowds. Uh, and uh, the odd part about it all is he almost gave it all up, right? He. He, he wanted to be a lawyer, <laughs> and he was in another league that folded, and he was thinking, you know what, man, I'll just go back to DePaul and get my degree. And they had, and he wasn't getting paid a bunch of money, so they had to coax him to come back to the league. But it really was about timing, uh, especially with his, his, his lawyer situation, right, because he really wanted to be a lawyer. That was his dream. That's why he went to DePaul, and he had an opportunity to do it. They even came up with a deal so he could – play basketball and do like distance learning uh, and figure out a way to finish his degree to try to appease him because they needed him to play basketball. They absolutely needed him. Uh, there just, just wasn't the draws. And there were like three or four leagues that tried to crop up, but they none of them were able to sustain. The only league that actually had the ability to draw and to make make it profitable was the league that the team that featured George Mikan and the league that he was in. Well, as as far as his, his lawyerly uh, desires, right? He certainly had the uh, the glasses for that uh, for that that profession. He he was a studious fella, huh? Wasn't he? Well, he certainly <laughs> he had the hair and the part, glasses, right? right? Yeah, he he definitely looked the part. Yeah, he was definitely a studious fella. But he was a terror. <laughs> no, I mean, he he was absolutely a terror. And other teams, really, I mean, as as the the various teams and leagues he was playing in, obviously becoming the Lakers uh, it's by by nineteen nineteen fifty, he. He was the target number one, two, and three, frankly, for most most competitive teams against them, right? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, they didn't take off really and become a dynasty until they got a guy named Jim Pollard, who's actually out of Oakland. He went to my high school. They called him Jumping Jim Pollard because he could touch the top of the backboard. He's amazed, it would amaze people uh, that this white guy could jump so high. <laughs> but uh, so Jim Pollard actually had a tough choice between whether he would stay playing AAU for the Oakland team, the mayor was trying to convince him to stay, or you know, accept the draft, you know, being drafted out of Stanford by uh, Minneapolis. So when he got Pollard, that's when they kind of started winning. And they won two championships before the three that are kind of connected to the NBA. So the Mikan's teams won like five out of six years before, you know, total. The last three were part of the Minneapolis Lakers. But once he got that second player, then it became like a real show. And so he would just hold the ball up, right? And Pollard would do his running around and cutting, and he's he's dropping passes to him. That's if they could if they could possibly guard him. It, it was it was quite the show. He became the draw. Uh, and I, I think the other thing for Micah we got to talk about is his ABA uh, impact. You know, he became the president of the ABA, and we and we know the ABA ended up being a place where black players got a chance to play where a new style of play got to, got to shine, and also where the three-point shot was popularized. The ABA made that popular. The NBA was interested in adapting it. So Mike's hands are pretty, pretty strong in the NBA's history. He's a pretty significant figure. Well, you mentioned um, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Joe as part of this mixture, Joe Pollard, um, but also there's some other supporting characters too, right? Uh, coaches and some other sort of uh, utility players, shall we say, making George look that much better. Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Slater was a really good player. Uh, Vern, who just happened to be from the University of Minnesota, and back then you could do the uh, – they, they had this thing in the draft where if you had a local player, you could give up your first-round draft pick and take, take first dibs on him. So since – he was playing at the University of Minnesota, and they were the, the team in Minnesota. They got to select him. So Vern Mickelson ended up being part of the trio with Pollard and 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 Mikan. So they ended up being the dominant force. And now you had your center. You had the first real like power forward type of figure, and then you had your playmaking wing player and Jim Pollard. All that stuff is present today, right? We see the impact that they began. We see it today. The tough physical power forward, the center who you dump it down to and kind of run the offense, and then the guard who can shoot and, and, and run around and be and be great in transition. Well, the, the coach, John Kundla, was, uh, was kind of credited for kind of uh, creating, I guess, uh, perhaps uniquely, kind of a sort of a – I guess for, for no better sort of description, a, a kind of a two-man offense, right, where, where both of them were kind of, you know, both Pollard and Mikan were kind of sort of gears that kind of were sort of leading the charge. And then uh, there was the rest of the team essentially kind of cleaned it up, so to speak. Absolutely. And can you, you can imagine that, right? This big seven-foot dude, they would, he would put him at the elbow because, the, the, you know, teams would do all they could to keep him away from the basket. Mike could just catch the ball, turn around, and that's a bucket. So they would try to keep him away from the basket, and he would draw everybody to the basket. And so he's got the ball in the air. You got all these little people trying to grab it from him, and Pollard is cutting off of him. 
and they became like this really great two-man game. And I know a lot of people don't know about Pollard. He isn't the name, but he had a lot of big games and a lot of big performances that mattered, especially as Mike had got older and, you know, getting up and down the court became harder. Pollard kind of took the reins a bit, but but it was the two-man game you're talking about. It was that kind of first offensive system that, that that they did that was so special. that It wasn't exactly the pick and roll, but they were definitely the first two-man game. Well, I, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm just trying to sort of imagine, and obviously we're, we don't have the benefit of a ton of, I mean, sort of there's film and there's, uh, of, of, of them and, and the team and playing and stuff. It's certainly not nearly as, as ubiquitous as it is today. But I just, I'm just wondering why they were so standout dominant uh, in these early, you know, uh, NBA years, these first NBA years, relative to other players. I mean, I... You know, you'd think there were some other, you know, quality players coming out of AAU and, and NCAA. What what do you think it was about Mike and in particular, and maybe uh, the the Lakers in these early years generally, that kind of made them stand out? Say versus what I would imagine is some some decent talent elsewhere too. Yeah, they, he had the height. They had the seven footer. It was a game changer. At, at those times, they just didn't. You just didn't have a lot of size in basketball. There wasn't big men. There was a lot of like, you know, regular people for that, quote unquote, like 6'4 was pretty big. Pollard was a big man at 6'4 until he got to the Lakers and you playing next to Mike and Mickelson. Mickelson was a big man. I think he was like 6'8. You just didn't have a seven foot guy like that, especially not one with the kind of skill that he had. So they had a cheat code in that sense. But then also they actually had a system. They developed how to play uh and, and you know some teams were close they, they definitely were challenged in that sense but the cheat code was George Mikan and it wasn't until him that we saw this craving for size he began that now the the NBA draft is full of like seven footers get drafted even if they can't play but that that's because of Mikan because he literally was a cheat code that made it hard for people to beat so you put you put really good players and you give them this seven-footer to run around like nobody could really match that. And it was tough, and it was fun to watch. It was something people hadn't seen before, and so it was an incredible draw. I mean, they, they draw 15,000, which don't sound like a lot, but that was huge back then. Well, um, before we sort of go further on that, I, let's just back up for one second. So I, I'm just trying to also uh, – and I, it doesn't feel like it's a straight line – how Mikan got to the Lakers because you, you sort of hinted at it before – he played for the Chicago American Gears. They kind of went belly up. He kind of lost his deal. They weren't paying him. But he was also kind of locked up despite that uh, dissolution, so to speak, of that team. But he somehow still I, – I, how did he wind up with the Lakers, if you can remember some of that story? Because it feels a little convoluted. A backroom deal. So no, they were going to revive. That. A backroom deal. That's <laughs> no, <not that. laughs> right. They were going to revive. So they were going to revive. The Chicago Gears was going to come into the NBL. And so, you know, that league that they were in were folded. They were trying to do this 24 team league. It lasted six games and folded. So the question was now the NBL was saying, we want to, like, which teams were actually worth bringing over. So the Gears were just going to stay how they were formed and come into the NBL. And they had the agreement and reading all of the articles, the expectation for the gears ownership, because they actually had some backing. They had some sponsorship. 
that the, the the ownership and the new and the league that sustained, they expected it to be approved. And then somehow there was a meeting, nobody knows what happened, and then everything changed. The gears were not going to be allowed. They would be reconsidered later, and then the players will be put into a draft. And guess who had the first pick in the in the expansion draft? <laughs> the Minneapolis Lakers. <laughs> and that's how he ended up on the Lakers. Oh, interesting. Okay, because so, so you're you're referencing this thing that was known for a very, very short time called the Professional Basketball League of America, which I guess was in the mix of the, the, the BAA as well as the NBL. I guess this was sort of a wild west, literally, right? Trying to sort of get professional basketball and the and sort of corner the market, so to speak, on something that was gaining some steam and some heat. Absolutely, and there was there was a couple other ones that I did mention in a book that tried to get going but couldn't get going, and it just turned out the ones that had Mike in was the ones that were survivable because you just needed money, right? It, it was really about money. Uh, and you had to have some level of money behind you, some company. The Chicago Gears was actually uh, – the Gears was named after the the company that sponsored them. That's why they called them the Gears. <laughs> a, hold, a, hold <laughs> right? over, a holdover from the corporate leagues of, of uh, the decades. Uh, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. So yeah, the Pistons. it was tough yeah, – and it was tough to get money. That, that, that was the big problem. You had to have a sponsor. You had to have somebody who could get you tickets. So there were a few that tried and failed. So, all right. So give me a sense then of, you're mentioning some of the crowds and stuff. Uh, Minneapolis, right? Minneapolis, St. Paul, obviously a, a pretty decent sized metropolitan area, even back then in the early 1950s, but it's certainly not sort of the largest city in the country per se, right? I mean, basketball, you know, really on the fledgling professional front or, or even, I guess, semi-pro or even AAU and, and the collegiate level, I mean, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it was like baseball was uh, decades prior, right? Very much a Northeastern, Midwestern kind of, uh, Middle Atlantic kind of centric thing, right? Minneapolis is starting to get a little, you know, westward, so to speak. I mean, Chicago is a little bit more, shall we say, urban than Minneapolis was at that point. I, I guess my point is, why Minneapolis per se, and, and how much of a draw was this team in those early formative, still not very fully professional, if you will, leagues? It was a draw enough. Minnesota was a very community-centered city. Like when 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 the Minneapolis Lakers came, like uh, it was something for everybody to do, and they kind of rallied behind the team. But you find what you're saying ended up being true when it was time to keep the team, and they couldn't do it. <laughs> and the owner is like, "Listen, I'm gonna sell this team," and he he made a deal. I think the guy's name was Bob Short. Sold him. He had made an agreement. And the city kind of rallied and said, "You can take our Lakers." And he was like, "All right, I'll give you until a certain date. And if you could, if you could come up with the money to match, <laughs> then you can keep the Lakers." And it didn't work out. But initially, it was enough in the infant stages because th there was just so much community support. Minnesota, even though it is a metropolis, it just had a very communal vibe, a very small town vibe, and they also had the star attraction in professional basketball. They had George Mikan, so they were able to rally around the central uh, driving force in basketball. But it did it did have a limit. It did have a ceiling. And when they reached it, that's when Los Angeles stepped in. All right. T t tell me about uh, the, the the style of play and, and, and the realities of playing in those early NBA years. Because, I mean— you're circling this as the first real dynasty. And in some respects, actually in many respects, uh, you compare and contrast that to 
uh, the later dynasties that you feature in the book, right? And it's almost, I want to say it's unfair, but it's, there's a whole nother level of, um, how can I put it, challenge, I guess, right? In that we're not talking about private jet, you know, uh, charter jets and, and, and player, you know, uh, welfare and all that kind of stuff, right? This was, a, this was, a, this was, they were making it up as they were going along. And, and I, you can't imagine how much of a toll it was taking on, on players, especially uh, the, the the level of a George Mikan who size wise and talent wise, right? I mean, you know, cramping into I don't know a bus, a, a train, a, an air an airplane that was relatively you know slow and prop and all that stuff, right? Oh man, road trips were brutal. They do like Philly, Boston, D.C. with like no days off in between. Traveling the same day they're playing by bus and all like, or, or maybe they ride with somebody. No, no planes. Very rarely was a flight involved. It was a lot of uh, seven games, 11 days traveling by bus on the Eastern seaboard and playing the same day you travel. It was a grueling, grueling game. Uh, and, and the style of play, especially for most teams was physical. What made the, the, the Minneapolis team unique was they actually played pretty fast, but just in a half court set. Basketball was half court to half court then. It was like, all right, we're going from station to station. But in that half court setting, they had some athleticism and they had like the high, the high post guy so they could move a lot. But most teams, it was physical. It was grueling. Lots of passing, no no cutting across the middle without getting hit, right? Like, it, it was rough. Rebounding was physical. Elbows, like, all that was part of it. And then you had to go on the road uh, or on a bus. And then on top of that, in many cases, you're not playing in front of a, a large crowd. Some teams, especially the less, the you know, the ones that didn't have the big, the big sponsorship money, you're playing in YMCA gyms. So, they they were definitely the grueling part. They were the bootstraps version of the NBA. They had to pull them up by themselves. It, it was grimy. Yeah, you. you I, I was going to quote from your book here uh, uh, on the on this uh, this dynasty of the Lakers. Each of the Lakers' first six seasons began with a road trip of at least five games, and in every case, the road trip included but uh, but a few days off. In 1951, they opened the season with a seven-game road trip, and it was completed in ten days. The trip began with a back-to-back in Rochester and Syracuse, followed by a five-day break. Then it was five games in five days, Philadelphia, New York, Boston, Baltimore, and Indianapolis. Such taxing travels were par for the course in those days. So in some, in many respects, you have to look at this uh, admittedly, admittedly early NBA life uh, uh, dynasty, uh, even that much more... Um, reverentially right because of all the inconveniences and 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 stress just from all that stuff let alone the physical style of play at the time absolutely and and they weren't making a ton of money so it wasn't like the compensation was grand uh if they didn't endure what happens that that's the part where they deserve a a healthy dose of honor and appreciation they put up with that they they paved the way for the eventual grammar by sticking to it, by still being entertaining, by by not uh, being driven by the wealth part of it, because they just weren't making it. So, I, I one of the best parts about this book is being being able to illuminate this element, right? Like their endurance made a league profitable, 
and because of that, we ended up getting the NBA. That like we, I don't think we can, uh, I don't think we can uh, revere that enough because it was grueling. It was not profitable. It was about the love of the game, and it, it was so pioneering. When you think of it, uh, what will become after it? Yeah, and, and that's sort of a backhanded way of sort of uh, of how and why we kind of sort of do this stuff. Because you know, look, I, I we'll get to we'll wrap up in a, in a couple of minutes, but I, you know, the the where the legacies of these current teams live and and on the backs of of pioneers and all that kind of stuff. I think it's you know I think it's extremely important now. You could say it's kind of just like uh, who cares and nobody, you know. But the reality is like that the L.A. Lakers didn't just didn't show up one day, you know, playing in the in the in the Staples Center, and and the bus family, you know, just uh, uh, sopping it all up and and making you know having a a multi billion dollar franchise, right? There was there was uh, shall we say much more humble origins, not only for this team but for all of these, and, and you can apply that to all these different leagues and and, and situations as well. I just I'm really curious. So the 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 Lakers of uh, of Mikan's day, right? There was a they they won the, the championship like it was three years in a row, right? Through 1954. Yeah, they won the first three championships. So in that process, right? I mean, they were essentially putting the NBA almost single handedly uh, on their backs, if you will, um, not just for Minneapolis, but. You have a great uh, illustration. I want to, want you to give a shout out to your illustrator uh, of of Mike and um, uh, holding up and, and changing uh, sort of uh, in a, a visual way. I don't think he actually did this. Maybe he did the sign at Madison Square Garden. Right <laughs> when he was going to New York, right, he was just as big of an attraction as a Broadway show when he was in town. Yeah, the the there's a story in the book about how he goes into the dressing room. He's getting ready. And no, none of his teammates are, are, are getting dressed. And so he's like, what's happening? And he's like, hey, they're like, hey, won't you play it by yourself? And that's when he finds out that the marquee outside says George Mikan versus the Knickerbockers. <laughs> they didn't even say Minneapolis Lakers. It was Mikan versus the Knickerbockers. So his teammates are joking with him like, hey, won't you just play it by yourself tonight? Uh, so that that was the emphasis for the drawing by uh, – by guy Yumi Huang, who is a, an exceptional artist, uh, who's been all over the place, Bleacher Report, ESPN, all of it. But he, he did some great work, kind of illustrating it. Uh, you're, you're so right in so many ways how important this is that we just we just at least respect it. I think the dialogue from today is so much more about tearing other eras down in order to prop up the era you prefer. When the truth is, all of these are built on top of each other. And even even when they moved to L.A., the Lakers were like, they weren't the juggernaut. They were dry. Jerry West is on the back of a bus riding around Los Angeles and neighborhoods, introducing people to basketball, playing games with people in the community, doing community stuff to kind of drum up the buzz of the Lakers who were new to town. Uh, nobody even knew about them at that point. So, you know, think about that. Jerry West, it stopped pulling up in neighborhoods like, hey, won't you come giving out tickets to fans so they can come support the Lakers? Like, they put in the work to build the league. So they, they are definitely worthy of the reverence. All right, well, so let, I, I, let's let's talk about sort of how the denouement of this story, right? So winning three consecutive championships, no easy feat, as we've discussed, 
Uh, Minneapolis certainly supporting the team. Mike and and, uh, and colleagues, although maybe not as large a uh, billing as uh, as Mr. Mike and, uh, you know, making making hay in, in major markets like uh, uh, like in New York and, and Madison Square Garden on his visits. Um, he the end, though, came of this dynasty came fairly abruptly. I mean, I, there was you, you sort of call out this 1954 uh, uh Last uh, championship season against um, against the Nationals, then in Syracuse, the Syracuse Nationals, and I'll let our listeners yell at their devices as to where the Nationals wound up, uh, because yes, they did sort of uh, meander <laughs> later on into the uh, into the NBA that we know today. But th- it was a grueling series against Dolph Shays and that team. Um, but he kind of surprised everybody, Mike, and did by kind of retiring or quitting shortly thereafter. I I, I wonder. Number one, why? And number two, uh, nobody saw it coming? I guess at the time, nobody did. But in hindsight, for what we know now, it's rough. right? It's, it's, it's rough on the knees. It's rough on the legs. And he was getting older. And it was a grueling style. And you got to love it to, to do it. Uh, and he also, he had become such a big star that he had also other opportunities. So it wasn't like, he just had to keep playing basketball. As a matter of fact, the longer he played basketball, the the less the less he probably would have made. He probably would have been better off quitting basketball and pursuing other interests because he was a pretty renaissance type of guy. So it was it wasn't a, it was a surprise that he walked away from a champion. But when you really look at it, the toll it was taking on his body, the opportunities he was passing up on while he's crunched on a bus headed to a headed to a road trip in Baltimore he probably was like hey man i'm done with this let me get out of here <laughs> let me go make some real money so it actually shouldn't be surprising yeah it's, i think it's also important to remember and you you call this out in the book too that um i, I it's probably also a case of like geez, what more do i have to prove right because it wasn't just those 3 nba championships right i mean the lakers by that time had won 6 titles in 7 in 7 years uh, which included one in the uh, predecessor NBL and the other in the other predecessor, the BAA, the Basketball Association of America. The so, BAA, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's not like Mike and hadn't really kind of – so, I mean, I think it's really important, and I'm, I'm guessing this is sort of how you construct this, and you hinted at it before, right? It's not just the Lakers of those, you know, first number of years in the NBA, but it's also Mike and, and his teammates in the situations prior to that sort of led into – the Lakers of the NBA and in sort of the uh, the feeder, if you will, leagues to that. I mean that. I guess that's probably the the almost the cement of the beginnings. I guess not only of the of the NBA, but but what a what a dynasty actually might look like. It's almost like a, a blueprint, frankly, for the dynasties that were to come afterwards. This like he had been carrying professional basketball for years. And that that was the great burden. And I didn't know if he knew what he was doing. Like, we don't know if he understood what was at stake. But he's literally putting professional basketball on the map. They're competing against college. They're competing against AAU. And they're trying to establish something that is sustainable. So at some point, yeah, he probably was like, I've I'm, I'm given enough. This is my blood, sweat, and tears. But that's literally what they did. And but this was before the NBA. Like they're barnstorming the the land, playing games. I, I do think he, he kind of wore out, and he wanted to be a coach. He wanted to be a general manager. He wanted to be a businessman. He wanted to be a lawyer. But he definitely paid his dues. 
All right. So I, I did the Lakers leave Minneapolis because he did eventually, or was it just where the Lakers probably not long for Minneapolis much longer, even if he did stay around? This is probably that, that's a tough question. Yeah, that's a tough. I, I think I, I think they weren't long for Minneapolis. Uh, you know, and we're, we've seen this premise kind of grow, right? The more money you make, the more you want. And if the league was going to grow, they needed to be in big markets. But the absence of Mike in took away the draw that they had, the the big kind of the the spectacle that he was. It, it wasn't there anymore. So now now they needed a market, right? They needed a new master. So I do think he expedited what was probably inevitable. Uh, and perhaps there is a universe where, you know, they could kind of reconfigure the team and, and the, the, the city still, you know, falls in love with it. Or maybe they find enough business to keep the team there. But the, but the truth was they needed the market share after Mikey was out because they didn't have the draw anymore. I do think that was a huge factor because people came to see George Mikey. And, and and they say the rest is history, right? The Lakers moved in, what, 1960, was it, I think? Yes, yeah, so they, they left in 59, I think. 59, 60, 60, right? 60, and, then, yeah. and then, obviously, a whole other sort of uh, uh, genre, if you will, of Lakers players and stuff. And, but, and, of course, though, too, I think this is also very interesting, too, that uh, Minneapolis, right, and the Lakers, the name of the Lakers, right, is obviously an endemic to that of Minneapolis. And here, the here they come in Los Angeles, where there's barely a lake to be found or even seen a, on a, you know, on a billboard, <laughs> let alone uh, naturally, right? So, um, but I, I, I guess it's really interesting that uh, just very soon thereafter, right, not only does everything from those 10 plus years past of, of the Minneapolis version, it just, for lack of a better term, it's whitewashed, right? Ever since, right? The colors, uh, the the, um, uh, the the zeitgeist of the team. I mean, how much of Mike in and this era have been remembered by the Lakers that that you can? I mean, I I know they do somewhat historically remember things, but I, there's not much Mike in in that. I mean, Jerry West, not, yeah, but right, yeah, not nearly enough. Definitely not enough. I mean, when they started the hardwood classics and they pulled out the MLPS uniforms like that's the first time you saw it in mass right or you saw it on a mainstream commercial level but not nearly enough i don't I don't think people even know who george mike is outside of the mike drill or his impact on the game or the impact that minneapolis lakers team had on establishing the nba no no they are kind of whitewash and i think because the style of basketball because the quality of player doesn't fit the paradigm that we understand the NBA, it's hard to put reverence in, on them, right? It's hard to see them as being able to play in these days. But they, they are certainly worthy of more because it, it just, again, it just doesn't happen without them. It, the league does not exist without them. They were the draw. And it, you just, like you said, the fact that they they had to keep the branding of the Lakers – when they were coming to L.A., right? That's how important it was. They could have created a whole new team, and we've seen that, right? We've seen teams leave an area and go to a new area and rebrand. Uh, but the, the the Los Angeles team was were so, like, needing of that kind of brand that they built in Minneapolis that they kept Lakers, even though it doesn't make any sense at all. So that, that just shows you how important – 
what they created was that they needed it in LA in order to even get the thing going. Uh, you're right. There's no way they they celebrated enough. It's, it, this should be common knowledge amongst NBA diehards. This should be you know how you got to in order to become a U.S. citizen, you got to like take the test and, and study and all that stuff. They should do this for like NBA diehards. You get a badge if you don't, if you end up knowing the history of the stuff. Yeah, well, and sadly, that's why we have the Utah Jazz. No disrespect, but um, absolutely, yep. <laughs> Another right. one. Well, one more question, and I'm, then I want to segue into the book generally and, and let you promote and stuff too. So, um, and this is a question we ask a lot of our guests about teams that have uh, relocated or or uh, have had their sort of memories uh, dissipate, uh, either uh, on purpose or just through the uh, passage of time. So the Minneapolis version of the Lakers, in your mind, and this is just conjecture and, and conversation, right? Um, and this is not a, a basketball Hall of Fame question or any of that kind of stuff. Where do you think logically and maybe uh, importantly, the Lakers history is best, uh, should should best be remembered and reside? Should it be with the Lakers franchise in Los Angeles, despite the fact of all the stuff we just talked about and how incongruent it is with the story of the Lakers, you know, from 1960 onward, or maybe perhaps because it's from Minneapolis, maybe it, it gets tucked under the wing of the Timberwolves since they've been at it for a couple of decades now, reheating, if you will, the NBA in Minneapolis. Nah, you got to keep it with the Lakers. <laughs> in honor, so, okay, in, in we, because we've had this conversation with lots of things in, in hockey and stuff, and we've seen many sort of uh, winks and nods and 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 sweeping under carpets of uh, franchises coming back and all that kind of stuff. And it seems to be somewhat accepted in hockey, but maybe basketball's different or this situation's different. I don't know. I think if, if the Timberwolves are actually any good, people would <laughs> people would want to do that. But they're they're champions, and what they built ended up becoming like you know, arguably the greatest franchise in, in the NBA, right? It's the most winning one. So they should be connected to that. They should be. We should be able to trace the lineage from LeBron to Kobe to Magic, right? To 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 uh, Kobe and Shaq to Magic, you know, Kareem. And we should and we should be able to we should be able to trace that to Mike. If you if he's with Minnesota that link would be tough to connect, but, but they earned that. Now, if somehow the Lakers never panned out and, you know, you end up getting, you know, the Minnesota Timberwolves, you know, you might make a different case, but to take them out of that lineage to me would be, uh, would be an affront to what they did. I feel like they belong in that line uh, that they created. Yeah. I, I, I tend to agree with you. And, um, uh, we uh, have on our radar Jeannie Buss at some point. Uh, we've talked to her brother uh, and uh, other folks around, and, and perhaps we'll ask this question at some point uh, about that, right? Because in essence, it is it is a franchise rich in history prior to Los Angeles uh, uh, getting that franchise. And, you know, I guess to your point, right, without, without uh, Mike and, and company, right, you don't get uh, all those players you mentioned. You don't get Elgin Bill. You don't get... You don't get any of it, right? I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, it, it, sets, no, yeah. it sets the tone, right? Yeah, you don't get, you don't get Wilt coming to the Lakers to, you know, you don't, you don't get Kareem leaving Oscar Robertson in Milwaukee coming to the Lakers. You don't get Elton Bader and Jerry West, right? You, you just don't get a lot. Uh, that championship kind of DNA 
that's in the Lakers organization. It's from their history, and that history begins with George Mikan in Minneapolis. All right. Well, the good news is that the other nine dynasties that you feature in this book feature teams that are still around and have direct lineages to to what they did. So I we don't have to. Go, I don't want to go through all of them, but can you maybe just explain to the audience sort of the um, just a little bit of a tidbit uh, or some tidbits of uh, of the other ones? I think some of them are kind of obvious, but there are also some others that are not still so obvious, despite them uh, the teams being uh, uh, still around and, and directly lineaged. Yeah, I loved going through it chronologically just because it, it, it was like, you know, following the, the course of history. Uh, I, to me, the are perhaps the most important dynasty uh, is the Bill Russell Celtics, uh, just because of how they, uh, in a way, modernized basketball and, and took it from, you know, this kind of grueling, uh, rugged game and made it something a little bit more aesthetically pleasing, uh, creating transition offense, right? Uh, amplifying defense and the shot blocker element. Uh, the things that they did were so pioneering that we still see the effects of it today, right? They created the six-man. Um, they, they had the first all-black team. They were welcoming black players into their franchise when, at a time when it wasn't popular to do so. Uh, and we, we learned that at, with the, with the spawning of the uh, ABA later, but the Celtics were a part, were pioneers in that sense. Like, yeah, we, we want to, we want the best black players in addition to the best player, you know, the best white players. So to me, what they did, uh, was so important and so vital. I, that's another one I think we kind of overlook and we dismiss, you know, because we, we don't have the footage and we, we can't develop the appreciation. But now when we're watching players, you know, protest and speak out on stuff, if, if we like that, right, if we celebrate that, if they get praise for that, then we got to especially point to the Boston Celtics of the Bill Russell era, you know, when Red Auerbach was drafting black players to come to Boston and – this was a time that that was a that you could risk your life doing that, right? Where where Bill Russell and Sam Jones are participating in the civil rights movement at a time where they could die doing it, and it was far more grave than than it is now. So to me, they deserve a lot of kudos. I really actually love the gap between the the Celtics, the Russell dynasty, and the Magic Johnson uh, Lakers, just because there were so many good teams in there, and they were all vying, right? The the New York Knicks with Frazier, the Lou Alcindor, Oscar Robertson Bucks, Bill Walton and the Trailblazers, right? right? I, I love that little mix right there. But the next dynasty is Magic Johnson uh, coming in, uh, teaming up with. Uh, Kareem and, and starting a new way to play basketball. The big point guard, the guy who's pushing it, the visionary, the the showman. They 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 made they turned up the entertainment aspect of basketball, which obviously was great. But also the rivalry with Larry Bird brought all those college basketball fans over to the NBA, which was highly needed, and it turned the NBA into a mainstream sport. Magic and Bird did that. It took it out of tape delay, right, <laughs> for reruns. Oh, yeah, of, CBS taped a lot of uh, Dallas. That. Yeah. At playoff games, yep. Magic and Bird elevated it to another level because they brought all those fans who watched Michigan State and Indiana State come, and then and they can they wanted to continue it. So they, they were huge 
for the modernization of the NBA, for taking the NBA out of the back, the off the back burner of the national conscience and putting them in the front. That, that era was incredible. And they passed it on to the Detroit Pistons, who obviously we all know for being tough and physical and defensive, but they, you know, they were, they were a great franchise. They, they were actually really incredible offensively. They were far more advanced offensively than they get credit for. But, you know, some of the things that they created was the stretch five with Bill and beer, right? Uh, the, the two little guards who kind of operate your team at a time where everything was about dumping it down, dumping it down. The two guards who could shoot the lights out. They, they leaned on those guys more heavily. And then that leads to Michael Jordan, who essentially globalized and commercialized the NBA, turned it into this massive, massive uh, global entity where now everybody's making a ton of money. The, the NBA is part of the pop culture landscape now. It's, it's, it's now not just about the basketball. It's about the personality. It's about the fashion. It's about the flavor. And, and Michael Jordan kind of really leveled the whole game up which which is kind of incredible and of course while they're up there then comes Kobe and Shaq right <laughs> two of the most dominant players of all time uh doing things that we had never seen before uh just man there's just so many I could keep going on and on you got the Warriors with the three-point shooting you got Tim Duncan and the Spurs bringing in the international element and, and turning it you know, turning back the NBA to the United Nations, right? Paving the way for Luka Doncic and, and Giannis Antetokounmpo. Uh, there's just so much richness in there. And then there's the teams that, you know, were on the cusp, you know, the set, the Dr. J 76ers with Moses Malone. Like, there's just so many great teams. It was great to go through it. I, I thought it was – I had a great time researching and writing this book. Yeah, I mean, I, number one. The Lakers make three appearances in your top ten, which I think is amazing. But, which is right. which which right, and the first of which was we just spent the whole you know hour talking about right, which is it sets it all in motion. But I I do you mentioned it I, the your your final chapter the near dynasties I I think it was great and and the seventies alone you could argue is you know sort of grappling for sort of like you know who's going to sort of take the mantle and and take it on and I'm glad you mentioned the Dr. J seventy uh, sixers because uh, that was one I, I I wanted to at least highlight before we went. Because that also kind of got started, not unlike the uh, the Minneapolis Lakers story, prior to the NBA, so to speak, right? Dr. J, the, uh, the the Nets, right? I mean, he brought them to the to the pinnacle just as that league was basically blowing apart. Um, but he was a tour de force in, in many respects, and and you wonder what would happen in the mid '70s when the NBA was. I, you, describe it. I mean, uh, uh, not on life support, but it wasn't all that great. Let's put it that way. Um, oh, it was struggling. He, yeah, he in the ABA, <laughs> but he in particular probably en- uh, encapsulated sort of the the energy that came into that league, and and he was, you know, you could make the argument, and maybe someday we'll get Dr. J on this show. You could make the argument that he was kind of the linchpin in seventy five, seventy six, seventy seven. Um, you know, kind of drawing new blood and, and attention to this uh, and energizing the league. Oh, without question, right, and and. That was the kind of war that was happening that had to be reconciled if the league was going to survive. Like after the Celtics, you had this power vacuum and probably the greatest era of parody in NBA history was in that span right there. But you also had this entire other league with this entire other electrifying way to play basketball. People also forget like uh, Lou Alcindor almost went to the ABA, right? He he had both offers on the table and he 
he kind of wanted to go, but he ended up choosing the Bucks. Uh, surprisingly, Dr. J ended up choosing the ABA, right? He took the money. Uh, well, I think his first team was it the Virginia Squires, and then he ended up on the New Jersey, the New Jersey Nets. But that that Philadelphia team was probably the, the, the one that ended up breaking my heart the most because they were so close to being a dynasty. They were actually – I know we talk about Lakers and Celtics. It was really Lakers, Celtics, and 76ers. They were in the mix for a lot of those. If the Celtics were in the finals, it was a really good chance they had to beat the, the Sixers to get there. And if they did make the finals, it's because the Sixers beat them, and then they just happened to lose to the Lakers. So they were right there. But if, if a couple games go a different way, we're probably talking about them because that team was so good and so underappreciated. Moses Malone, right, at a time – where everybody's playing small ball center. He was the ultimate, right? He was he was he wasn't even what? Was he six nine? Maybe not even that. Yeah. You couldn't guard him. He was a rebound machine. And then now you got like guys like Draymond Green, Bam out of bio, like the Moses Malone is their predecessor, right? That's their that, that their origins. But that team was so good. I love that Philadelphia 76 team. And the truth is, right, Dr. J, even I remember growing up and my I was a big, I was a big George fan, a huge George fan, right? And I had my dad, and my uncles, and them telling me he ain't as good as Dr. J. And I thought they were insane, right? I was thinking you guys are nuts, right? <laughs> it's Michael George, but that's the predecessor. Like Dr. J was everything. Uh, he he was the, he was the the golden star of basketball, uh, and and he carried an entire league. And when he came to the NBA, when that merger happened. At, there, there was a big uh, culture element to this, too. I know like the people a lot of say race, but there was a major culture element to this, too. The NBA was a far more conservative, fundamental league. The ABA was flashy, up and down. They had the red and white ball. People were dunking. There was a highlight, you know, a lot of highlight league, but, but it was kind of stigmatized as playground, not serious, unprofessional. So it wasn't until – the NBA decided to stop being so uh, tight. <laughs> they were like, you know what? We kind of want those players too, that we found this merger of basketball and, and this merger of styles and this kind of unifying of these two cultures. So Dr. J was essential to that, was huge for that, getting respect for this type of basketball that was derided because of the type of people who were in it. And especially forgotten his, uh, his memorable season as uh a member of the Pittsburgh Pisces. Oh, yeah. The fish that saved Pittsburgh. Baby. Let's I, go. Yeah, it just shows you that. Uh, well, look, I, I just thought this book was 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 terrific. I mean, look, I, you you know, one when one sees, uh, uh, you know, a top 10 or whatever, kind of, you know, like, okay, well, you know, somebody else's take on. But this is, it's really well done. I mean, it's, 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 it's much, as much, I would, let's put it this way. I think it's a very uh, digestible book for you people who think, uh, History is not for you. Well, it's it's history, but in a very digestible way with with great graphic uh, uh, illustration. It's almost a, um, a sort of like a graphic novel, sort of in in its uh, uh, in its setup. Um, tell me, uh, it, it came out very recently. What, uh, tell us, uh, give us the, uh, the the title of it and and all that stuff. What what else are you doing to promote it? And um, you know, where can we find your work generally as well beyond the book? Yeah, so Dynasties, the 10 GOAT teams that changed the NBA forever, uh, is available wherever you buy books. Like you said, I believe it is an incredible gift, and I encourage 
all people, if you know a young NBA fan, a young basketball fan, put this book in their head. They should know their history. And like you said, it is it is made with them in mind. It's not a history book, but it, it's where they can learn history. So I, I think that's great. I love being part of it for that element. Uh, you can get it. I, I suggest always suggest local bookstores support local uh especially independent but obviously you know you can get it from amazon barnes and noble uh i would love for you to check out my work uh, i'm a writer for the athletic you can check me out at the athletic.com i cover just about everything uh, mostly bay area sports but a lot of national nba i'm into nfl uh and we just have a great time at the athletic producing content that is hard to find anywhere else uh i'm on all social media I would love to hear what you think about the book, like it or not, whatever you think. I would love for you to hit me up. I'm at Thompson Scribe on just about every platform. So I would love to hear what you think about the book. This has been a great privilege to write about this and talk about this. And I think it's very timely while the NBA celebrates the 75th year. All right, all right, all right. Let's get you the uh, the data you need to know. The book you must get. It's a tremendous holiday gift. It's uh, especially good for uh, young audiences who uh, might be uh, just getting their sea legs with uh, with basketball, uh, and they could use a little history as part of it, but uh, in a fun uh, and visually, uh, graphically uh, appealing way. Again, the book is called Dynasties, the 10 GOAT teams that changed the NBA forever by our guest this week, Marcus Thompson. Uh, it is available wherever fine books are found, uh, including, of course, your local bookseller. It is uh, published by Black Dog and Leventhal Publishers. And um, he, uh, you can get it uh, not only wherever you get good books, but let's say you want to get it like instantly tomorrow. Perhaps you'd like the, the Kindle version. Well, you can get it at Amazon, of course, as well. Uh, and there's a convenient link to that. Uh, that uh, way of purchasing from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 239 with Marcus Thompson and uh, you'll find the convenient link there. I'll take you to Amazon. We'll get a couple of uh, shekels of love referral. Uh, we appreciate that. And uh, however you get it, just get this book and get it for your friends as well. It's, it's great. It's really cool. And I've learned a ton. And as I said earlier in our conversation, it's not just the 10 great dynasties, but there's also a chapter in the back, the near dynasties that uh, we sort of hinted at, the Walt Frazier version of the Knicks, the Dr. J version of the Philadelphia 76ers. All of those are also covered in this great and graphically rich book. Marcus Thompson can be found regularly uh, as a columnist at The Athletic. If you haven't subscribed to The Athletic, well, what the hell are you waiting for? Uh, it's it's the successor, if you will, of, of every great sports section and newspaper's uh, when newspapers used to be a thing, uh, when Sports Illustrated was uh, relevant, uh, all of the places that one might have gotten great sports reporting and and journalism and and and, and column writing and all that stuff, uh, that's you can find that now at the Athletic, and and that's where Marcus's work can be found. Uh, he's in the Bay Area, a lot of Bay Area stuff and hoops in particular. You can follow him on social media, of course. Uh, on Twitter at Thompson Scribe. That's T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. Scribe, S-C-R-I-B-E. Thompson Scribe, at Thompson Scribe. On Twitter, you'll find him also at, at Thompson Scribe on uh, Instagram as well. Um, 
And let's see, if you're on social media, well, why don't you also give us a follow uh, on our various platforms too. We're on Twitter at Good Seats Still. We're on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And we're also on Facebook too. We don't know why, not for very long. I think it might be a New Year's resolution. We might just kick ourselves off of it. Um, you know, so perhaps uh, you Facebook fans might want to get ready to go to those other platforms because uh, we're just we're just tired of it. We're sick and tired of the Facebook story. Sorry, had to say it. But we're on there for at least a couple more weeks. So uh, good seats still available. You'll find us there too. Okay. Uh, don't tell anybody because we're, you know, not for long. Uh, let's see. What else? How about email? You want to send us some? Great. How about it? Hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. We try to read them all. Certainly. We try to answer them all. Eventually. Hang in there. We'll get to you. We, we read them all. Trust me. Uh, you can also send us uh, an email address and your name on our website somewhere at goodseatsstillavailable.com to get on our weekly email newsletter. I'm sorry I don't have it handy off the top of my head. I just forgot what uh, tab it's under. Someday I'll remember it, but it's there. Just search around on our website and you'll find it. Just, again, just your name and your email address and boom, you are on the list and you'll be informed hours, maybe even a day sometimes before the uh, hoi polloi uh, gets it in their feed about what we're going to be talking about this week. What else? How about Jerry Payne? We love him. We love. We uh, can't live without him, of course. And uh, thank you, Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne, audio excellence uh, for uh, our uh, collective pieces together that you've woven, so to speak. There you go. I'm not, I'm not even saying it in a linear fashion, and perhaps you already spiffed it up. Well, we appreciate it. Of course, we can't do the show without you. We, uh, we thank you tremendously, of course, as we do each and every week. And we thank you, our fine listeners, our great fans. We appreciate it more and more by the week. And uh, we don't know why you listen, but uh, we can't appreciate it enough. Until next week, when uh, we've got another fun topic uh, to uh, deliver to you, hopefully. Uh, take care of yourselves. Please stay safe, everybody. And uh, take care. Uh, and uh, bye.